Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us today. Before we get started, I do have a little favor to ask of you, and that is that you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. All you need to do is go to the Apple Podcast app if you're not currently on it, search for Grow My Salon Business, then scroll to the bottom of the page, select Ratings and Reviews, and write us a review. It'll only take you a minute, and we would be very appreciative. Ratings and reviews are extremely helpful, and they're greatly appreciated. They do matter in the rankings of the show, and they help other people to find the podcast. And obviously, I also love to hear what's been genuinely helpful for you. So with that said, on with today's episode. Many people open a salon with a dream to grow it into a big business. Unfortunately, only a very few of them achieve that dream. In today's hairdressing industry, there's been a growth in the independent stylist, the salon suite, the booth renter, the freelancer, the business unit of one. But that business model certainly isn't for everyone, whether you're a client or a hairdresser. And you can still build a brand and create a culture and a career path and offer training and benefits and an amazing workplace that gives people a place to belong that is bigger than just them. My guest on today's podcast has done that and so much more. He is David Wagner, hairstylist, artist, entrepreneur, educator, author, and founder and owner of The Jute Salons, based in Minneapolis, but also in San Francisco and Arizona. In today's podcast, we will discuss what it takes to build a successful salon brand, the meaning of being a daymaker, creating salon culture, the COVID impact, and so much more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, David Wagner. Anthony, it's so great to be here. I've been really looking forward to this, so thank you for inviting me. My absolute pleasure. I've been very much looking forward to this for a long time. So it's good to finally have you on the other end of the uh, the microphone. So um, let's start off with an overview. Uh, a lot of our audience will know exactly who you are. Some people will not. Uh, so give us your sort of 60-second uh, background. Who is David Wagner? Give us your sort of backstory, just the key points, and then we'll dig into that afterwards. Okay, great. I uh, grew up in a small town in uh, Minnesota here in the U.S., and I ended up going to school. I was in the first class of the Horst Education Center. Of course, Horst started Aveda, and I was in the first class of 13, and Horst was our instructor every day. And then I went to Europe. I uh, graduated from the school, and Horst set me up with uh, some of his friends in Europe. So I spent a couple of years training in Barcelona and Paris and London, and then ended up coming back and working with Horst again, Uh, became the vice president of the company at the age of 23, and didn't have a clue about uh, workman's compensation or rent uh, negotiations, but I did know how to attract 
really great people and inspire them to do great work. And then uh, 1986, when I was 26 years old, I decided to open my own salon. And uh, I didn't take anybody from Horst. I started with a friend of mine that moved back from another state and an assistant from school and uh, grew that business for three years where we were busting at the seams and I was looking to open another location. And Horst was starting to work on Aveda and wanted to grow Aveda. So he said, why don't we merge? You can take the salons and I'll grow Aveda. So uh, 1989, Horst and I merged our salons and 1991 out of that. Uh, 1998, I had the opportunity to buy the Yosh Salon in Palo Alto, California. Yosh is like the Japanese Vidal Sassoon. He's just a fabulous hairdresser and was looking to retire. So we bought that. And then uh, about seven years ago, bought a couple of salons down in Arizona. So right now we have uh, nine salons between California, Arizona, Minnesota, about 450 employees. And, uh, uh, that's kind of the backstory. So we're, okay. you know, I feel well, fortunate to have, you know, had that life and, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing how that came to be. Good. Okay. Well, let's go right back to the beginning. Uh, you said you grew up in a, in a small, you know, rural area. Um, how, what was the, what was the, the thing that drew you to hairdressing? You know, it's as far away from the beauty industry as you can get. I grew up on a farm uh, with animals and, you know, chores. And my father was a blue-collar worker. He was a plumber, pipe fitter, welder. And uh, when I was 14, I went to the city uh, to visit my cousins. And my, my aunt said, we're going to the salon to get haircuts. Do you want to go with? So here I was 14. My only experience at the farm was my grandma would cut our hair. So I walked into the salon when I was 14 and there was rock and roll music playing and beautiful women walking around. And I thought, oh my God, this is it. So it was like going to Hollywood for me. <laughs> and so I decided when I was 14, I was going to be a hairdresser and uh, graduated from high school. I also played hockey and I played well enough that I had free rides to three major universities. So my father, being very proud of me being a hockey player, said, what are you going to do? Meaning, which school are you going to go to? And I said, I'm going to be a hairdresser. And he said, no, you're not. They don't make any money because of the small town that I grew up in. He didn't know anyone that did this as a profession and made money. They all did it part time in their basements. So I persisted and uh, found out that Horst was opening a school. And uh, was lucky enough to get in on the first class. And, you know, like I said, there were 13 of us and there were no clients. So uh, the structure was really interesting, too. Uh, from 830 until 11, we did yoga because we didn't have any clients. <laughs> and Horst was Horst was the instructor. So it was it was just amazing uh, to be in on the ground floor of that. And also, you know, that's the year that he started Veda and was actually called Horst of Austria Shampoo at the time. And I was, you know, one of the guys down in the basement mixing in five gallon buckets, uh, shampoos and conditioners. And uh, yeah, I was just right place, right time, you know, yeah. farm kid. Yeah. Amazing. What a, what a story. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't, didn't know Horst, uh, obviously the way you did, but I was lucky enough to, to have lunch with him a couple of occasions and have some one-to-one -one yeah. conversations and, uh, intriguing man. And, and, uh, what what an incredible 
you know, business. I mean, like others had before him, you know, Vidal and, and uh, you know, maybe John Paul DeJury and Paul Mitchell. Uh, he certainly revolutionized, changed the industry dramatically and very definitely yeah. for the for the better as well. So what what a privilege yeah. for you to be in there on the ground well, floor. Well, it's really, you know, you know the, the interesting too, you know, especially when we became partners and years later when I was helping him with the beta, he was such a genius and so, so passionate about nature. Yeah. And my passion was human nature. Yeah. So he and I balanced each other really well with, you know, what his mission was with the beta. And then I ended up being the people person and, you know, the day maker, which we'll get, we'll get to in, in a bit, but uh, we were, I, I learned some uh, part of it was just that balance of how, you know, our, each of our passions uh, uh, helped each other. And was this at the time, so you're working in his salon, um, he's behind the chair doing clients. Is that? He was behind the chair until uh, while I was in school. In fact, my first job, uh, the school was right next to an old mansion that he was cutting hair in. Yeah. And it was kind of a bad part of town. And uh, people were paying $100 a haircut in 1977 in Minnesota, which and he had a waiting list of three months. Yeah. And because it was kind of a bad area, there was a turnaround drive in the mansion. And so my first job getting out of school, cars, I was the, the valet guy and I did it really, really, really well. I did it well enough that he <laughs> got compliments from his clients. So he brought me inside and I got my inside job with him. And that was shampooing and folding towels. And then I, he chose me to be his personal assistant. So I was like a human clippy yeah. for six months. Every, you know, he didn't use clips. He had me. So he would section the hair off and yeah. I would be, you know, right there. Uh, watching him create weight and take weight away. And, you know, it, it wasn't so much watching him do the work. It was watching a master be a master. Yeah. All the little nuances of being a master hairdresser and picking up on that was such a great education. And at the same time, he is literally mixing up product in the sink. Yeah. You know, down in the basement, we were Shivnath, my, my friend Shivnath Tandon. He came from India. Yeah. Uh, at the request of of uh, Swami Rama, who Horst was uh, a student of, and he he started it started with him making Horst shampoo and conditioner personally because yeah. he said, "Why are you using these chemicals?" Because he was a natural chemist, and Horst started telling his clients about this shampoo and conditioner that you know his friend was making, and it took off from there. Amazing. If there was, you can't I, make it up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I yeah, I know you could devote an entire podcast to talking about horse and and uh, you know those early days, which would be very intriguing. Uh, but perhaps that's for another time. But I do want to ask you uh, about horse, the man. If there was one thing that you would say is what made him the success that he was and the company that he built, what what would that one thing be? He he was a futurist. He really saw. You know, he saw opportunity in creating change, yeah. and you know he had a he had a great saying, which was, "We can do really well by doing good." And so it was all about the environment, but the timing, his his timing was impeccable with coming out with these, you know, natural products at the time that he did, and uh, the efficacy that you know he fought for, and um, you know, and it wasn't just the environment; it was supporting people and tribes and yeah. you know underprivileged uh, you know environments. So it was it was truly amazing. I think 
his focus and his passion. Uh, th- that's what I admired the most. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So you were, as you said in the intro, you were one of the well, you were the first one of the first students in the first intake of the first school. Is that is that have I got right. it right? Yeah. So yeah, and there's about ten thousand students a year now that go yeah. through Avade Institute. So it really was something. It, it, it wasn't the Avade Institute; it was the Horst Education Center because Avade didn't even exist yet. Yeah, and you started the day doing yoga, and then he would he would, he was the teacher, was he in the school? Yeah, he was the yeah he was the teacher. Wow, okay. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so well, after your travels, you then came back and decided to work with him. Yeah, he, you know, it's funny, I, I went from working in the mansion with, to going to Barcelona, Paris, London, worked in the best salons, and came back and he said, I want you to work in the St. Paul salon. And he was working on Aveda at that time. So he stopped cutting hair while I was away, uh, on clients anyway, not for shows. And I walked into the St. Paul salon, and it was in last place. Have you ever worked in the last place place? Yeah, I know what you mean. You can feel yeah. it. Yeah, right? yeah. You can feel it. So I, <laughs> I I fresh back from Europe, you know, working in these unbelievable salons. <laughs> and I walk into the last place salon and I almost walked out, but I thought, no, you know what? I can do something. So I brought in magazines from Europe. I brought in music from, you know, my travels. And we started doing soirees on Wednesday nights, just working on, you know, our craft. So we went from last place to first place within a year with the same people. Wow. And I became the manager of that mm. salon. So that was one of my biggest learnings because I didn't fire these poor performers. I just inspired them to do better work. Yeah. And then the vice president of the company resigned to go work for Pillsbury, big multinational company here. He was an MBA type. And Horst said, we're going to be interviewing for vice presidents. What do you need? And I said, well, if I was vice president, I would do this and this and this. So two weeks later, he called me and after he had interviewed a bunch of business people, and he said, okay, you're vice president. <laughs> <laughs> I was 20. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. I was 23 years old. Yeah. And what was funny about it was, you know, so now all of a sudden I'm making more money than I ever dreamed of. Yeah. And my, my younger brother was graduating from high school. And my dad said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to be a welder like you. And he said, welder. And he said, why don't you be a hairdresser? (laughs) Things things really changed on the farm. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's, that's incredible. Okay. So how long, like you you worked with him as vice president for X amount of years? Three years. Yeah. I did that. I did that for three years and, and loved it. And then one day I was sitting in uptown Minneapolis, which is the busiest intersection of the city. Yeah. And this guy put a for lease sign in the window across the street and I was having lunch. So between my salad and my tortellini, I opened the salon that I did when I was 14. Yeah. <laughs> I, I walked across the street, signed the terrible lease and told Horace that I was going to be opening a salon. And literally, literally as quick as that. Yeah. You've, yeah. You have a lunch, like, you walk across bang, yeah. That's it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because I had seen it. Yeah. I've seen it since I was 14. Yeah. And I sat there and I just kept imagining and imagining, imagining. And, uh, you know, Horst was more supportive and it actually worked out for him too, because, you know, I was traveling around a lot doing, uh, stage work for Aveda mm. and talking about Aveda, but I was, you know, in the company fold, so to speak. 
Yeah. So having my own salon, being independent and being able to talk about Aveda was even more credible sure. because of my success that I was able to experience there. So we literally started with three people in a 16 chair salon yeah. and I almost went broke for two or three years. We just kept hiring more assistants. I didn't hire anybody with experience because I didn't want to rob my neighbors. That's something that yeah. I'm very proud of that we've never you know, headhunted or gone after yeah. uh, anybody else's business. And then at the end of three years, we had 32 people working out of a 16 chair salon. And it was, you know, the first kind of uh, chair sharing, uh, yeah. so to speak. We were open from seven in the morning till nine at night and just killing it. And uh, that's when I would, that's when I looked to open more salons. Fantastic. What, what is the key to successful expansion? You know, you, you built up, well, as you said, it was tough at the beginning, but you got it to a point where it yeah. was going. So, and then you expanded, and I'm sure, you, like me, you've seen a lot of people who've opened a second and a third and a fourth. Well, a second, and then a year yeah, later well that, or two that, years later, that, that was going to gonna be. Yeah, that was going to be my point, Anthony. I think what I tell people is have one or more than two, because I've seen it over and over again. You, it's okay to have two until you get to three or four, yeah. but the plan should be more. You know, have more than two because you can do just as much business in one, like I was doing with 32 people. If I would have opened just another salon, I would have had, I probably would have taken 10 of those people, put them in the second salon, had all those additional expenses, yeah. split the revenue, but, you know, add the expenses. So I was lucky with Horace. He had four salons at the time and I had one. So I went from one to five, but had I expanded organically by myself, I probably would have gone to two with the intention of going to three or four because then you can afford a general manager. You can afford yeah. a creative director. But, but having two, there's just, I, I've seen it time and time again where somebody's very successful with one and then it gets so diluted because, you know, you're splitting your time, you're splitting your resources. So if it takes getting to two to get to three, that's great. But I think, you know, the key is to have one really kick-ass one salon or, you know, the, the, the multiple of three or four that allows more, um, more revenue. And then you've got the, the means for infrastructure that, that it takes to run multiple salons. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's kind it. of like having kids, you know, I, you know, you'd think that you know, I have two, I have two daughters yeah. having one daughter, having a second one wasn't twice as much work. It's, it's three times more work, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's just the, the dynamic of splitting your time. Yeah, that's interesting. Someone once said to me that going from one salon to two salons is the biggest step you'll ever make because it's the only time you double the size of your business. Whereas when you go from Good. two to yeah. three or three to four, you're not doubling. You know, you're you're sort of that's growing. That's a great point. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I often have reflected on that. And the people I see that fail when they open a second business and I shouldn't say fail, but they then end up closing it and going back to the, just the one is that they make the mistake of thinking that they've got the Midas touch and that the business just runs itself. And what they don't realize right. is that they are the business. And unless they develop all the infrastructure and the systems, then they end up with sort of two half businesses. And it's sort of only a matter of time before they end up consolidating back to one. So that's a really interesting. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm, I'm also a big fan of, of acquisition versus opening new. So when I bought Yosh, you know, to, to, for me to go to San Francisco and open a new salon, uh, I couldn't have done it, yeah. but to acquire not just the building and the equipment, but the talent, 
that's that made it a lot easier. So growing through acquisition, the thing that you need to pay attention to when you're acquiring is making sure that the beliefs and values, the culture is similar. Otherwise, yeah. everyone will leave, right? Yeah. So uh, my expansion has come from the original horse salons, growing those from 2,500 square feet to opening another one of 4,000 and moving that. We've had the same number of salons in Minnesota for 30 years, Yeah. but we've expanded them, right? With the same people and then grew from there. My other acquisition or my other growth came from purchasing Yosh and purchasing the salons in uh, in Arizona, but what I was really purchasing was the people and the talent yeah. and they were like-minded and saw Jute coming in as a lift, you know, mm. that, that it was going to be taking them to a new space. And that's been, you know, that I, I would, I would really encourage people to look at acquisition versus, you know, growing from the ground up over yeah. and over again. But I think the key point that you touched on with that was about the culture, because, yeah. I, I will put my hands up and say that I, my, my second business was an acquisition um, and it had a very different culture to my business. And uh, right. so you spend all your time trying to change the culture. Uh, yeah. And it is a challenge when you try and do that. Yeah. Much easier to, to, much. to employ people or buy a business that already shares a similar culture, similar values and, and grow from that rather than to try and get people yeah, to it's- change. Agreed. I think it's more important than location. You know, everybody says location, location, location. Yeah. If you're acquiring, it's culture, culture, culture. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. Good so, point. Yeah, I, so yeah. Yeah, when you had the one salon that was like bursting at the seams, what what happened? You you went to Horst or Horst had four or five salons at that time, did he? You went to him or he came to you and said, listen, why don't we go into partnership or something? Was it that sort of arrangement? Well, it's funny. My friend Shivnath, who came from India to help Horst with Aveda, he uh, he was a very good friend of mine, and I was he was very savvy in real estate as well. So I told him that I was looking for a new location to open a new salon, and he went back to Horst and said, "You know, David's looking at another location." And Horst came to me and said, "You want to grow salons, and I need to focus on Aveda. Why don't we merge, and we can accomplish both?" So that's how we ended up merging, and it it was just fabulous. Okay. It helped. It, it was great for both of us. Yeah. So he was and the people that, in the salons. Yeah. yeah. So we were yeah. we were partners, uh, and then two years later, I bought him out of that partnership so he could focus on on Aveda. Right. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And ever since then, you've just been, you know, building on on that base. So okay. Yeah, we went from you know at the time we were doing three and a half million dollars, and. Uh, you know, now we're at 35. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, with the same, like I said, we've added uh, California and Arizona, but the same number of salons in Minneapolis and, you know, we're 10 times what we were. Yeah. Does that create a management, I'm not going to say nightmare, but obviously it creates challenges when your salons are spread around the country. I mean, it's a long way to San Francisco from, you know, where you are, and it's a long way down to Arizona. So, you know, whereas yeah. if they were all in the same state or the same city, it's obviously easier to move people around and 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 to, to manage the culture. Do you do you spend a lot of time traveling or do you have really good general managers in place? The you know, I when I first bought Yosh, we had people there, you know, living there pretty much. We rented an apartment and there were people from Minneapolis. But we found the right manager that uh, now leads our Palo Alto salon. And I tell people, you know, the 
the, the Palo Alto salon is about as jute as it as jute gets. And it's all because of the leadership there. The general manager and the hair directors are are so fabulous. And you know, that's that's what it takes. There's, you know, the I think the whole thing with travel, I go down there, there's nothing better than just eye to eye sitting with people over dinner and you know, walking around the salon and and complimenting their work. But the last, you know, really 10, 15 years is the death of distance. So even with, you know, COVID, you know, we had so many uh, virtual meetings and, uh, you know, touching base with that. But I, I couldn't do it in Arizona or in Palo Alto if the culture wasn't aligned. And yeah. we're, you know, it's like, you know, I, I study anthropology and it's like we're one big nation with various tribes. You know, Palo Alto is its own tribe, but we're, we're all part of the same nation, so to speak. And uh, we all believe in the same uh, values and beliefs that create our culture. Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, with your businesses, do you own the real estate as well, or do you lease the properties, or is it a mixture of both? I wish I would have invested in real estate years ago, but yeah. some of our locations are in in areas that just wouldn't be affordable to buy right. because they're part of larger structures. Yeah. So um, we own a fabulous uh, creative hub downtown Minneapolis, where we have a podcast studio, video uh, mm. production, photo studio, as well as housing all of our administrative staff. And there's a creative space there for doing events and so on. So we own that. We own our training salon, which is in uptown Minneapolis, and the rest we uh, we rent. And yeah. uh, because we're, you know, we're, we're pretty dominant brand, the landlords give us, you know, pretty great rent breaks because we're a draw. Yeah. We bring in thousands of people a month to that, mm. you know, mall or that that center. So, you know, our our, our goal is to keep our rent, you know, six to eight mm-hmm. percent of of uh, of our sales, and uh, I think that's a good. Of course, lower is better. I know, you know, some people that own the real estate that are doing better than that, but uh, six to eight percent here in the states is a is a pretty good market. Uh, yeah, I would have said it was very good from what I see. I mean, I know a lot of people rip yeah. your arm off for six to eight percent of their sales being rent. Well, so and, well and, and, and everything and everything is scale too. Like you know, our our most expensive location uh, is thirty five thousand a month rent. Yeah. yeah okay. Thirty five thousand a month rent. Yeah. But we do six million in revenue, so yeah. it's all relative. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, where do we go from here? Okay, so it's sort of the elephant in the room. Like, all right, is it is that you, you wrote a book and the book is called Daymaker. And life most is of my, a daymaker, yeah. Life is a daymaker, sorry. And, and and most of my American audience will know of it. Uh, but some of the 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 non-Americans maybe less so. Uh, now I I will put my hand up and confess to, to the fact that I actually try and tell the story about how the book came about uh, when I'm doing seminars. And I find it very, very difficult to tell the story without getting choked up because it's a very emotional story. Uh, So I'm going to leave that alone. (laughs) I'm going to leave that privilege (laughs) to you. Uh, So so tell us all about how the life of the daymaker came about. Well, I was was traveling with Aveda. This was 1986. And I was traveling doing a lot of shows and I was in Dallas, Texas doing a show and there was a famous French hairdresser that was uh, in front of me. He was presenting right before me and he brought this model out on stage and I heard backstage 
him talking through a translator, you know, with the 14-year-old model and her mother, what he was going to do. And so he brought the model on stage and she agreed to go from shoulder length to, you know, about chin length uh, haircut. And he, he got out on stage and he, you know, did the first, he pulled a razor out and he ended up cutting her hair about an inch long. And as he was going through the haircut, the model could see herself in the monitors, you know, big screens behind her. And all of a sudden her lips started to quiver and she started to cry because he, he was cutting her hair an inch long when it was supposed to be, you know, down to her, to her chin. And he, he, the, the audience was just really unnerved by it. It was just this odd, almost abusive, you know, deal. Yeah. And when she stood up and walked to the front of the stage, the audience kind of gave this odd, you know, applause. And then she ran off stage bawling and I was next. And my model said, you're not going to do that to me. Right. And I said, no, 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 no. Uh, so I came out on stage and I said, you know, I said, um, that was really uncomfortable. I said, what if, what if I was here to make her day, my model's day? What if I was going to make her day more than my day? What if I was going to make her day instead of your day, the audience? I said, she doesn't want that much cut off. So I'm going to show you using a, a triple scissor how to texturize this haircut and create something new out of an existing shape. So I ended up, you know, taking this layered bob and texturizing it with this triple shear, which was a new technique. It was something mm -hmm. they could do on Tuesday. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a dramatic makeover. And as I started cutting her hair and she started seeing herself in the monitor, my God, her eyes just lit up and the audience was like, oh my God, she's so happy. I had her stand up. I took the cape off. She stood up to go down the runway. As she stood up, the audience stood up with her. I got a standing ovation for a mediocre Bob. And what was amazing about it was the, the act of beauty, you know, the, the heart to heart resuscitation, I call it with my model. So I was flying home that night and this was 1986. I, you know, I would, my show uh, attire was leather pants and big rock and roll hair, 1986. I was like Ario Speedwagon. And I, I ended up sitting in first class and this very conservative businessman was sitting next to me and he said, what do you do? You know, because I looked so odd. And I said, I'm a daymaker. It's the first time I said it. Yeah. And he said, a daymaker. He said, what's a daymaker? And I said, well, I make people's day. And he said, wow, you must be really good at it because you're sitting in first class. So I went home and the next day I went to my printer and I had my business card change from stylist to daymaker. And I started handing it out to my customers. And they said, Daymaker. I said, yeah, I'm here to make your day. And oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. For three months, it was so cute. I'd be at a party and I'd hand somebody in my car and say, I'm a hairdresser. Come on in, I'll make your day. So cute. After one of my clients who came in religiously every five weeks for a haircut, she came in between haircuts for uh, just to have her hair blown. You must have something going on tonight or, you know, what's going on? No, I just wanted to look good and feel good. And I said, great. So I gave her a really great stress relieving treatment, scalp massage, the best shampoo that I could give. And we had a blast for a half hour. And when she left, she gave me this really great hug and she left. A few days later, I got a note from my client. She said, David, thank you for being there without knowing that you were. The reason that she was to look good, the reason she wanted to look good was she was planning on committing suicide that night. And she chose not to in our half hour. She went home, told her sister what she was going through. 
and got into the hospital and thankfully wrote me a note explaining, you know, the impact that, that I had. What I, I get, I, I tell this story since 1986 and I get chills every time I tell it. What was remarkable was if you would have lined up all of my clients, I would have never chosen her as the one. It seemed like she had it going on. Her work was great. She had seemed like she was, she didn't seem that way. And I thought, God, what if I wasn't there? Not physically, but what if I was fighting with my girlfriend? What if my rent was due? Um, what I was present enough to intuitively know what she needed. So I started treating every one of my clients as if they were the one. My 10 o'clock appointment was the one. My 1045 appointment was the one. And all of a sudden, something that I was really good with something that I was really good at, which was cutting hair, ended up being uh, something that I lived for. My passion for making someone's day uh, was that. So Daymaker all of a sudden went from cute to profound. And it was it was just amazing. In fact, I know you said you've been telling that story since 1986. Um, do you ever get choked up when you're telling it on stage to a oh. big audience and stuff? Yeah, every every time I, I can I it's like I'm standing opening that card for the first time again. Yeah. And you know, I've told that story hundreds and hundreds of times. And you know, what was what was interesting how that turned into a book was I I saw how it affected my staff. I told my staff and all of a sudden they put Daymaker on their business cards. And this was when I had the one salon. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody at Horst when I when I joined Horst again. Uh, we put it on our cards and I started traveling around, not doing hair, but telling the story and what an impact we could have. And I was lucky enough to get on a speaking tour with, uh, with Deepak Chopra and Dr. Wayne Dyer. And I was the hairdresser. So Deepak would come out and tell this, you know, quantum physics of, you know, the energy in the world. And, uh, Dr. Dyer would come out and say, okay, I'm going to tell you the, uh, the taxi cab driver, you know, the taxi driver version. And then I would, I was clean up with the hairdresser version and, (laughs) you know, they were, people were lined up to buy books and tapes from them. And uh, Deepak said, why don't you have a book? Because people were coming up to me and saying, you know, you should write a book. And I I have a high school education with a year of beauty school. I didn't know we wrote books. Yeah. So I took some time and I wrote my life as a daymaker. And the reason it's called life as a daymaker is, you know, I tell people, I didn't want it to be a theoretical book. I'm not, you know, I'm not trained in psychology, psychiatry, mm, whatever. Mm. But I, I used to have two theories on raising children. Now I have two children. I don't have theories anymore, mm. right? So the book is about my life as a daymaker, my experience as a daymaker. And what I noticed was it wasn't just a daymaker stylist. I'm a daymaker dad, a daymaker husband, a daymaker stranger, a daymaker boss. So the the book is really about how to live your life as a daymaker. And, you know, it's not about doing things for people. It's when you decide to be a daymaker, the universe just puts it in your lap. You have the opportunity to open a door or, you know, you know smile at somebody. It's, it's the smallest things, but it's changed my life. And it's, uh, it's changed millions of people's lives around the world. Uh, the, the book is uh, in, in Mandarin as well. So there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, people in Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and China that have uh, adopted Daymaker. Mm. And Daymaker doesn't translate in Mandarin, so it's called Life as a Ripple Maker. Okay. <laughs> ironically, <laughs> right? Okay. And yeah, uh, yeah and it's sold about a million and a half copies uh, here wow. in the U.S. So 
it's it's just amazing. And mm. so now I'm I'm working on other media with a, a movie and a a sitcom about uh, about the the lives that we can change uh, by being daymakers. Fantastic. I mean, I've got the book. I, I I don't know where it is at this point in time, but I've got it. I read it. I don't know ten years ago, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it it is an incredible. I suppose what I was going to ask you is what what is the lesson that you want people to take from really being focused on that the woman who sat in your chair and you were nice to her and you made her feel well, good yeah, about herself. I, it's I, like hairdressing is an incredible opportunity to 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 in that example to save someone from taking their own life. I think I just think that's an amazing thing just to acknowledge about what you personally did but also about the impact that we can have behind the chair i think the biggest lesson there for me was uh you know what we do as a craft is to make people look good what we do as a profession as a calling is to make people feel good and you know when you can make someone look good is is fabulous when you can make them feel good and actually, you know, come into a state of full aliveness and seeing new possibilities in their life, mm. both by how they look and how confident they become because they see themselves as beautiful to how they feel and how that lends to their quality of life and their ability to spread that uh, ripple of energy by being kind and, you know, inspiring. I, I think that's the secret. You know, the, the moments that we live, you know, some of the simplest ways of making someone's day they're so simple but those are the moments and they become magical moments when it's just synchronicity you know opening yeah. a door for somebody you know and um, all of a sudden those moments become days and those days become weeks and all of a sudden you you're living life as a daymaker mm. and it's it's a blessing every day how much of that comes from the young boy that grew up on a farm you know with a, a good family that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, the, the, the background that I had with, uh, my mom was Irish and, mm. uh, her whole family and her whole being was, uh, about, about being a daymaker. She didn't call it that. Mm. I'm glad that I was able to finally coin a term that described who she was, but, um, she would go out of her way to be a daymaker and make people's day. And I just emulated that. It was how how you were supposed to be as a as a citizen in the in the world. Yeah, yeah. I know it's a it's a fantastic story. I I uh, I love hearing it from uh, the horse's mouth, for want of a better expression. I, I must admit, I had told a slightly different version, um, but <laughs> the 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 essence of it was exactly the same. Uh, does the lady in question know that? you uh ended up writing a book about it and you know that it's become such yeah, a significant you know, thing I, sure it's helped a lot of yeah ironically ironically uh we have a salon in scottsdale arizona and uh i lost touch with her a few i, I continued to do her hair for a few years and i didn't write the book until you know about 10 years later and i lost touch with her in between uh about a year ago, I got an email from our manager in our Scottsdale salon saying that she had stopped in and just wanted me to know that she was doing well and her life was beautiful and just to make sure that I knew the difference that she made had a lasting difference. Fantastic. Uh, so I know that, you know, now I'm getting chills again because, yeah, yeah. you know, to be able to do that and then have it be, you know, something that, uh, 
Yeah. And gosh, that was, you know, nearly 25 years ago, 30 I, years ago. I thought you were going to say that she stopped and was looking for the royalties check. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, no, that's a, that's a wonderful story. It, it really is. It warms my heart. And uh, again, you know, I think it makes hairdressers understand that they can have a huge impact on people that they should never underestimate. And that sort of leads me into something that you already touched on, um, and that was about culture in a salon, you know, and that's why I asked you about your family background, how much of it was to yeah. do with that, because, you know, in a salon, I know when I first opened my salon, people didn't really use the word culture, and I never really thought of culture in a, in a business, you know, right. uh, but over the years, I've become very, you know, fixated on on culture uh, and trying to define it and trying to create it, et cetera, in a business. And, you know, you've mentioned a few things about the amount of salons, the amount of staff, the amount of revenue, uh, et cetera, that you're generating out of these businesses. So you obviously have a great culture. And, you know, I know they have that I- Italian saying, um, that you often hear in these mafia movies about how the, the fish, the, the head rots from the, oh, the fish rots from the head down or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's also in reverse. When you look at a business, the culture if, of the business is from the top down. So what I want to ask you about is how do you create a culture in your business? Because I've never been into your salons, but I'm pretty sure I know what I'm going to experience. Well, I, 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 uh, when I look at culture, I look at, you know, emulating other strong cultures in, in the world. So, you know, some of the cultures that I've studied are the Native American culture, gang culture in the United States, the sense of belonging, um, the, the importance of colors and flags. And there's all kinds of things that go into the anthropology of a strong culture the the armed forces has a strong culture of brotherhood and so on and so forth. So I look at, you know, what is it that we want to be known for? And more importantly, not not just what the purpose of our business is, but do we have a noble purpose in being a business? And our noble purpose is to transform the world with beauty. So it all starts from that vision of transforming the world with beauty. Our mission from that is to celebrate individuality, authenticity, diversity, and real beauty, not just with our clients, but when a when an employee joins us, we our dress code is very lax because we want people to be themselves. So that's that helps define a culture, so to speak, right? It's not right or wrong. Like I grew up with the horse culture of everybody had to wear black. And I changed that because our culture how can we celebrate authenticity and individuality when everybody dresses the same? So mm. it, it's not a right or wrong, but it was a way for us to be a, a stronger culture and live more into that. So I think it's really looking at, you know, what are the beliefs and values of the organization? How do you attract like-minded people? Because that's what ends up happening. You end up drawing people toward what they believe in. And you, you actually repel people that don't believe the same thing. So Horst used to always say, there's not a right or wrong, there just is. So at Jute, the way we are isn't for everybody, and that's okay. And that's the same with, you know, we're a commission salon. I believe that being uh, a group of like-minded people and uh, working uh, with a company is different than uh, renting and being a solopreneur. 
Mm-hmm. I, I like the group energy that our, that uh, a staff of 450 gives us versus 450 independent people. So it's not a right or wrong way of doing business, but I can't imagine being that fragmented in beliefs and values and operations and all that. So we've chosen to uh, continue to celebrate what we can do as a group of, of like-minded people and uh you know, that's why we have employees versus independent contractors. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you do, because um, more and more you talk to salon owners uh, across the US, but also, you know, in, in Europe, the UK, Australia as well. Uh, and there is a, a movement, I mean, it's much stronger in the US towards uh, salon suites and, you know, what I refer to as the business unit of one or indecon- independent contractors or freelancers or or whatever the, you know, yeah. the booth renters, chair renters, whatever the term is going to be. And so I love it when I talk to someone who's got a strong employee-based business and employee-based culture, because I speak to many other people who just feel completely beaten by it. And they've put all their staff as booth renters or, you know, chair renters, uh, uh, you know, and and their businesses are crumbling. And, and in a lot of cases, it's because they just really don't have a strong, defined culture. So, you know, the fact that well, you've and, really and, got and that. Systems. And systems. Yeah, yeah, and system as well, because, you know, they're, the, the reality, is, I, I understand why some people go rental because the salon that they're working for doesn't provide them benefits or structure or education growth opportunities more than they would get as an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. So at Jude, our whole focus, you know, we serve about 400,000 customers a year. Uh, I've got 450 customers myself. They're called employees. Yeah. So my job is to make their day, right? Yeah. And the way that we do that is continuing to uh, add to not their commission potential, but their earning potential. A third of our stylists are make over six figures. We don't have uh, wow. a third of them make mm-hmm. over six figures. Amazing. And uh, Jute's job is to provide the environment, the guest service, the education, the marketing, you know, the whole environment to allow them to come to work and leave at the end of the night and know that they don't have to direct message a client back about an appointment tomorrow and all the things that booth renters do. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really, um, you know, the difference between being stuck in a booth rental doing a $60 haircut or having the opportunity to charge 100 at Jute and the ability to go to 120, you know, the next year and 150, you know, two years after that. So yeah. the earning potential, I think, is really what needs to be focused on. We have, of course, health insurance, and we pay three weeks paid vacation, which is unheard of in the industry. That equals 6% of their pay. Mm -hmm. And we also have a 401k, a pension plan. We just had, I was just out in Palo Alto a few weeks ago celebrating somebody retiring from the beauty industry. And you Mm -hmm. don't hear of people retiring with a pension from the beauty industry, but we started that in 1989. And people are just thrilled that, you know, now they're in their, their, uh, you know, their masters and have this, this bucket of money that they're able to count on for their retirement. So it's, uh, it's not easy being a salon owner, I surround myself with really smart people that, you know, run operations, run marketing, human resources, all of that. Um, I get why it's, it's so difficult. When I opened my first salon in 1986, I made mistakes that I was able to weather. I would never be able to weather those now. It's just gotten so much more complex. 
So I, I understand where people throw in the towel because man, it takes, it, it's, it takes a lot of talent, a lot of work and, mm. you know, the margin for error, you know, salons used to make 10, 12% profit. You're lucky if you make three to six now. Mm. So that three to six is the margin of error that can go south in a real big hurry. So I, I totally, I'm so empathetic to people that don't have the resources to create that kind of structure. And, mm. um, you know, in fact, that's, uh, the, the salons that we look to acquire, are have strong cultures but poor systems, okay. or lack of systems, and yeah. that that allows us to come in and provide uh, that growth mechanism, and you know people all of a sudden feel more secure and stable in their work, and yeah. that's that's really important. Yeah, okay, but I get I mean, it. I totally get it. Yeah, I mean, you've been in business uh, as an owner for for, for since 1986, 35, 40 years. Yep. Um, right. So you've seen multiple generations come through as employees. What I want to ask you about is obviously you don't run your business today the way you ran it in the 80s. What are some of the things, so there's two different ways of asking this. I can either say to you, what do young people want today and how do you accommodate it? Uh, or, or I can ask you, how have you, how has your business changed in terms of meeting the needs of young people today, especially as we've come out the other end of COVID, it's had a you know, a rocket behind yeah. it, hasn't it, in terms of that change? You know, it's interesting. There was somebody that said the challenge with the youth of today is they don't respect their elders. They want everything for nothing and they're lazy. And do you know who said that? Who? So- Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this, you know, we, we think that this is our yeah. generation versus the one coming up. And, and yeah. you know, when I look back at, you know, what inspired 20, 30-year-olds in the eighties versus what inspires them today. I think it's the same thing. The nuances, uh, you know, technology of course has changed and things, but I think, you know, the biggest change that I've seen is the, the desire for work-life balance that, you know, they want to make a good living, but they don't want to, you know, spend 50 hours a week doing it. So we have, you know, where a full-time job used to be 40 hours a week at Jute, you know, our average is now 30 to 32 hours and they make a damn good living within 32 hours, but then have time to balance their life with their own health, their own wellness, their families and so on. So it's something that, um, you know, some salons, if somebody wants to go part-time, they don't allow it or they fire them. Mm-hmm. We have so many part-timers, but then we, we share their chair, you know, yeah. so having a couple of 25 hour a week people that not, that means my chair is full 50 hours. So I think, you know, to, to be that adaptable and understand what that is, is really important. We did a, a survey last year called the happiness index. We wanted to know how happy our people were, what their financial wellness was, how, mm. uh, how we communicated, uh, you know, all these different subjects and the sense of belonging. There's one great question is, do you have a best friend at work? And organizations or locations that that is really rated high thrive. So our whole social network of people becoming, you know, we've got, sometimes we have to close the salon because of a wedding, because they're such good friends with everybody in the salon that everybody wants to go to the wedding. Mm. And that wasn't allowed back in the eighties, you know, maybe two or three people could go, but the whole culture of, you know, we did, uh, you know, you've seen these word clouds where people put in, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the one that comes up most. Ours is family. Number one is family. 
So, you know, we've got 450 people that are part of a big family, but in their salons that they work, that's their, that's their work family. And then you spend more time sitting around, you know, with, with them than they do their own families, you know, uh, during holidays. So I think, you know, it's really important that the connection that people have is more important now. And that work is there's, it's not work and play. It's how, how can you create play at work? Mm. where they where everybody feels part of the tribe and part of the community and valued as part of that where sometimes you know they don't in their own families yeah so having that acceptance of individuality and uh authenticity you know knowing that you can come to work without putting a mask on yeah or sometimes you go home to your family and you have to put your mask on yeah yeah and that's that that's part of the culture right Okay. So you, you talked about families. I know you've got two daughters. Uh, and I'm, am I right in saying they work in the business now? No, my, my oldest daughter does. She just graduated from uh, the American University in Paris in communications. So she's yeah. leading our, our social media and communications and community involvement. And my my younger daughter uh, studies international relations and is going to grad school. So she likely won't become part of the, the business. She's more interested in uh, nuclear terrorism and uh, all kinds of international conflict. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's amazing, just amazing. But uh, my my oldest daughter is uh, is interested in the business. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've got two daughters a similar age. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about, and it's sort of connected to that thing about different generations. Uh, what, what is what is her role in the business and what is her different generation, her different way of looking at things in terms of people? How has that impacted on your thinking? You know, sharing that perspective, she represents a, a generation of employees that, you know, I, I see my daughters, but um, I've got blind spots, you know, and she's really good at, at picking up on those blind spots and, uh, bringing to me what is important to our staff that I, you know, uh, wasn't necessarily as aware of five, six years ago, she said, uh, dad, we have to start working on pronouns. And I said, what? Yeah. You know? And so we, we, we changed our application to, uh, him, her, they, and I, you wouldn't believe the impact that that had, even on people applying for a job at Jude. And I, wow. you know, that was five or six years ago, and I, yeah. I just was not that aware. But you know, those little differences that you know help define a culture and help uh, refine who we are, and uh, is remarkable. So I, I count on her in that, as well as just you know all things creative. I, I put together all of the music in the salons. I like controlling the environment. And I'm a, I am love, love, love music, but I go to my daughters for suggestions because not only do I have 20-something employees, I've got 20-something clients, mm. and I, my taste may be a bit different. So I, I like to widen it out and, and, and uh, gain their perspective on, you know, the environment, what the decor, all of those things. So, you know, we've got 20-somethings represented and 60-somethings represented. So yeah. it's, uh, it's important to listen. Yeah. Do, are all of the salons the same? Do they all have the same, you know, ethos, the same target market, the same sort of culture? No, you know, it's really interesting. I We don't have a chain of salons. We have a collection. Mm-hmm. And the, why I say that is our St. Paul salon is in a, a quieter neighborhood. People come in in khaki pants and jogging outfits and Lululemons. 
And then our Edina salon is a little more high-end or sophisticated. People make sure they dress up to come in. Palo Alto, of course, is much different than Tempe, Arizona. Mm. That's a university town. So we share all the same beliefs and values. When you walk into the salon, you feel um, a sense of, of continuity, but yeah. the they're different. I mean, they're, 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 they're unique within their own environment. And that's where I think, you know, it goes back to uh, celebrating individuality and authenticity is, you know, we, we see our demographic is not necessarily an age and income. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that lifestyle is around uh, uh, being an individual and, and authenticity. And that shows up in very, very different ways in different uh, locations. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the branding ethos are still the, are still consistent. Sure, okay. Um, so and even you, staff, you know, like staff, we 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 have uh, staff that train, and here in Minneapolis, they have multiple locations to choose from. We say, you know what, go spend a few days there and see how it feels, because it's going to feel different on that side of town than this side of town. You've got to find your family, right? Yeah, yeah, and there yeah. are some subtle news uh, nuances there. So it's uh, you know, people wear different shoes in one salon. Than yeah. the other, they see different movies, they travel to different locations, they cook yeah. differently, you know. But uh, once once an employee has found their family, it's uh, it's really satisfying. Yeah, I'll bet. Okay, uh, you touched on before about profit, and uh, you you I think you said uh, if you're making between three and six percent profit these days, you know you're you're doing okay because that's what most people are making. Um, can yeah. you expand on that? Is, is that is that that it? I mean, like, so what, well, what think, am I asking you about? Was it was it more than that ten years ago? Yeah, it was more than that ten years ago. And imagine, you know, we weren't, you know, people were paying with cash and checks. Now we pay two and a half, three percent credit card fee. Yeah, uh, tax employee taxes have gone up. The rent has gone. Up, you know, all of those things. Um, just the the operating in, uh, of a salon is uh, certainly different than it used to be. The reason I say three to six percent, uh, Modern Salon, which is a, a publication here in the U.S., every year they do a survey of, you know, and the, the bottom line is how what's the average uh, salon making, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's around six percent. Now, if you're cutting hair yourself and you have three other employees, it would likely be higher because you've got your income there as well. So, mm-hmm. what I'm talking about is, say, a salon that's you know half a million and up that uh, has a manager and so on and so forth. So it's, you know, maybe 80, 90% of the industry in a commissioned environment, mm-hmm. I think three to six, if you can get over six, you're doing well. Yeah. And a lot of that's controlled by, you know, your rent percentage and, you know, how involved you are or aren't in the business. Yeah. So, you know, my, my whole thing is I pay people as much as I possibly can, mm-hmm. but I share with my staff, we do the money game every year. Mm-hmm. We start with a dollar and we get down to six cents. So we show where the money goes. Mm-hmm. And then for them to realize, you know, if you ask an average employee, how much of a dollar do you think I keep? Mm-hmm. They think 25, 30 cents. Yeah. Oh, so least. we show 50% goes here, 25% goes here, 6% yeah. goes here. Now we've got 6% left. We got six pennies left. Mm-hmm. Now, who wants to be the government that's going to take 40% of that? And then the hot water heater goes out and then the salon needs a remodel. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, 
it's, yeah. it, I, I love to be as transparent uh, with our staff as we possibly can because, yeah. you know, everybody then is, you know, watching how many towels and products and all of that that we're it, going Exactly. Through. I was having that exact conversation with someone before we jumped on this call. I used to do exactly the same thing, you know, and it used to amaze yeah. me. I'd say, okay, if a dollar comes in, you know, what percentage of it goes to, to credit card fees? And people would look at you as if like you had, you know, two heads. It's like, what, what, yeah, what do you mean credit card fees? And it was like, well, if someone pays with a credit card, we have to pay a percentage of that. Um, and so, you know, if last year we did a million dollars, how much of that million dollars went out in credit card fees? And when you tell them the, the share dollar value of whatever it was, right. they're like, I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And consistently, well, so rent, I believe in transparency. Yeah. So totally. yeah, rent is another one, you know, so they, you know, they might be renting an apartment for $1,500 and our salon is four times as big. So it's around $10,000. But when they find out that it's, you know, 25, 35,000 a month, their, mm. their jaws just drop, you know, yeah. so it, it, it's really important to be transparent, not, you know, not to make excuses, but then everybody starts tightening up. And, yeah. you know, the, the, if we could get to seven, 8%, I'm not going to keep it, I'm going to reinvest it. Mm. And that's, that's the message that we share as well. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, retail is a big part of your business. It should be a big part yeah. of every business. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you're you know, an evader salon. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about was what percentage of your total sales, I think you said you're a $35 million business. Um, yeah. What percentage of total sales should a salon aim for as a percentage of their revenue? You know, that's a really tricky question. And then the reason I say that is, uh, so at Jute, our uh, percentage of retail used to be 32, 33% of our total income. Wow. But now it's 28%. Yeah. But our average service ticket has gone up faster than the retail prices. Right. So the percent, so we're selling more retail than we ever have. Yeah. So the way that I measure retail is what our average retail ticket is, yeah, not what it is through percentage. So, you know, and the, the other is uh, if you're like, we've got some store environments where we're right on the corner of Maine and Maine yeah. and it's an Aveda store up front and we do a million dollars of business, you know, at those stores with the staff included in that. But some of them that aren't in a retail location necessarily aren't going to have the same walk-in sales. So we take a look at what our retail per service ticket is, because that's that's going to be more parity. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what is the retail per service ticket, not just the, the the retail? Online has affected us a bit, you know. So now, you know, mm -hmm. clients are buying a lot more online, but um, we're finding that you know, making sure that we make the recommendation, uh, we're still at about thirty percent of our clients on a daily basis by retail. Yeah. So that hasn't gone down. Uh, but they might be replenishing their stock at home. So um, I think, you know, the key to look at for retail is, you know, not necessarily the percentage, because if my average service ticket, if I charge $100 and you charge 50, I, it's going to look like I'm selling less. Mm. Does that make sense? So we could both be selling $20 client retail, yeah. but it's going to look like I'm half the performer that you are. Yeah. So that's that's really important. Yeah. But that and I get that you said you look at it a different way, retail per client ticket. Is that what it was? Retail retail yeah, retail per service ticket per service is ticket. one way to look at it. So yeah. that's you know, of every haircut that walks in, what is the average? Yeah. And that and then you also want to know what your average retail ticket is. If you have a lot of walk-in retail, 
yeah. you know, it's, it's important to measure that too. But if we're looking at parity between you and I mm. and the performance of our two salons, the retail per service ticket is really important. And ours averages around $14, $15 per service ticket. Mm. Okay. Well, they've really high about four times. It's like four times the average. Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, yeah. when you said it had yeah. dropped to, what did you say it had dropped to? When I asked about the percentage of total sales, I think you said it dropped to 24. From it 30. was at 32. It, went to, it was at 32. Now it's yeah. 28. But so it's that's because huge. our service business took off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that is, yeah. that's. So amazing. we're still doing a million dollars. We had four locations, uh, four locations that did over a million in retail. Mm. Wow. Just as a, Just you know, in a guide. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's fantastic. Um, you, you were talking before about your your team and and how they're you know commission based. Uh, can I ask you what what sort of percentages? I think you said you had a third of your employees earning over a hundred thousand a year. So what I wanted to yeah. ask you is what what would be the sort of top percentage you would pay people? Like what's that sort of scale look like? We pay we pay we have three levels. There's studio, senior, masters. Yeah. The the studios and seniors make 45% commission. They have an opportunity to hit a high performers bonus of either two or 4% in addition. Our masters make 50% commission. They also have an opportunity to hit a high performers bonus of 2% or 4%. So the top would be 54%. Yeah. And then as a master, or if you've got over five years experience, we pay one week vacation after the first year, two weeks up to five years. After five years, it's three weeks vacation. And it's paid. The, the pay is the same as you would make as if you were in the salon, yeah. right? So that that equals 3% commission or 6% of your pay. Mm-hmm. So that's something that you know a lot of people don't, they'll go to work at a higher commission salon, but the, the vacation rate is lower. So yeah. the, the highest we would go is uh, uh, you, you would hit 54 plus three so 57% is the highest with with uh uh paid vacation included 54 right. is the highest commission plus the 3% paid vacation yeah yeah okay that's and that's we contribute fantastic. to the pension you know if somebody's putting away 10% of their income in our 401k pension plan we're doing a match on that of 6% so there's other there's other ways that we you know contribute and then health health insurance of course and yeah all of that okay so one of the things that I, I touched on before, um, we talked about it briefly, but it's such a big issue in the American salon industry at the moment, is the whole sort of salon suite, independent contractor uh, movement, for want of a better word. Where do you think that's going? Like, how can that evolve? Do you think, I often hear people talk about it as a pendulum, that they've seen this happen before and that it will come back. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think what's interesting about the whole suite uh, emergence is that it's truly the only legal way to do booth rental in California. You know, it, uh, the way that you know these franchises of Sola and JC, you know, there's there's franchises now that are doing these suites. Um, they have their own key, they have their own entrance, they have you know they're they're independent. In California, it is uh, not legal to be in the same location you have to there's all this whole thing with the irs the internal revenue service here in the u.s that that's becoming more and more difficult uh for salon owners that turn into chair rental there's a big difference between chair rental and booth rental 
Mm. So as, as it becomes more mandated, uh, I think booth rental uh, is going to become even more prevalent. And for me, you know, the, the, the increase in booth rental has, has actually uh, not benefited us, I would say, but, you know, when somebody goes to a, a chair rental where they go to a rental salon, they're still in the same environment with 10 other people. So there's activity that's, there's a yeah. culture there, right? Yeah. But what I find in uh, what's amazing with, with the suite rental is one chair, one shampoo bowl, there is no culture. Mm. There is no vibe, you know, because there's one person. So what we found is 60% of our clients mm. that uh, when a stylist, when an artist goes to booth or uh, yeah, booth rental, suite rental, 60% of our clients come back within six months because they miss the environment and the vibe. So we're just opening a new salon, 12,000 square feet. There will be 80 employees there. And it's like a nightclub. You know, you walk in and it's it's got its own vibe and, you know, it's an experience. And you imagine that same, I think there's two different clients. Some clients would love to just sit in peace and quiet in a suite and, you know, just have that, that uh, environment. But the majority, or especially our jute employees or customers, I should say, they they they're coming for the show, you know, and, and it's uh, it's a very different environment and a different experience. So I like to own the first five minutes and the last five minutes, and that's the client walking in, what music we're playing, what beverages we're offering, the interaction with the customer service people, the phone call they get when they get home. All of those things give our our company leverage, and uh, you know, then the artists get to do what they do. It's like, you know, I, I shared uh, the story. I have an artist friend and somebody said, oh, you should open a gallery. And she said, why would I open a gallery? She said, I'm an artist. I'm not a gallery owner. And I shared that with one of my staff. And she said, you know what? I'm an artist. She said, I'm not a gallery owner. So the difference between coming in and creating art and being a daymaker at Jude and going home, knowing that, you got vacation, you got healthcare, and you all of those things. That's what is is helping us. Where when you go to the booth rental, uh, it's it's very much different. Then you're managing inventory, your all of your appointments, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, so it's amazing. Okay, um, so look, I I know before we started recording that uh, we had a little conversation uh, about COVID. And uh, we we weren't going to focus on COVID, but it, it's it's obviously it's important to acknowledge it that it's had an impact on businesses. Uh, what, what's happened to your business over the last um, you know couple of years as a direct result of that? We uh, we've lost staff, not you know to rental, but we've lost staff to daycare, kids not being in school. Uh, just the, anybody that is immune compromised, not wanting to be in that close with a client. So we're, we're down the number of, of artists we have, but what's, um, what's interesting is our available hours. So we look at how many chairs do we have? How many hours are we open? And then how many hours are they staffed? Right. And our availability is down about 10%, but our productivity is up 10%. So the people that are still with us are busier than they've ever been. Okay. We used to average around 75% productivity. Now we're averaging 85% productivity. Mm-hmm. And we weren't able, we hadn't hired any new artists to go through our training program in two years. 
this month, we're hiring 52 new people and putting them through our training program now so that we can add to our available hours. And we're really, really excited about that. But, you know, the staff that are still with us are busier than they, they're making more money than they ever were. Uh, but we're just not, uh, we don't have every chair filled the way that it was before COVID. Um, so we're, we're on track now uh, with the 52 people we're bringing in. Uh, we'll be back uh, to normal uh, staffing. Yeah. Uh, I know it takes about a year to go through the new artist program. So 2023, we'll, we'll be back to our normal available hours. Okay. And, and I know you said that you had salons in multiple locations around the city. Um, yeah. with, with the whole shift in the working from home thing and a lot of people not going back to offices and all that sort of stuff, has that, has that had a negative impact on yourselves? We had one salon downtown Minneapolis, right in the middle of the business corridor. And, you know, 95% of our clients came from those office towers. And to give you a perspective, uh, Minneapolis, there were 240,000 people a day worked in those towers within about a six block, six block radius. Yeah. And when COVID hit, there were five to 10,000 people downtown. So we were dying on the vine. And fortunately, our, our lease was running out in six months. And rather than renew the lease, we just closed immediately. And our staff from that salon all went out to our suburban salons. Mm -hmm. And they they're they're doing better than they were downtown because of the the just the demand on our time. Yeah. So we we look forward to getting back downtown, but it's still there's only thirty or forty thousand people a day downtown Minneapolis. So I like I, I look forward to opening again downtown because we we served uh, people really well down there. And then we had another salon in uptown Minneapolis. And if you're aware of all the social unrest around the George Floyd uh, yeah. murder. Uh, that was like, we were right in that area and it became just really difficult because of all the protests and uh, all the violence that, that happened that we ended up closing that salon as well. So we closed two of our salons, but I'm so proud that we, we were able to keep everybody employed, including receptionists and so on. There's a couple of people that chose not to go out to the suburbs and stayed in, in salons in the area, but uh, everybody was offered uh, job and we we guaranteed their salaries for three months uh, going out to the suburbs, and uh, you know so Minneapolis is starting to come back in the downtown and the uptown area, but um, uh, we'll see. We we're really looking forward to having an urban presence again in downtown Minneapolis, but it's just premature right now. I think it'll probably be next summer. Yeah, so that's the new salon that you're opening. The the no, the new salon is uh, we're moving one of our an existing salon in Edina, Minnesota. Right there, that one's do that one did about uh, six million dollars last year, eight thousand square feet. Yeah, so we're moving that one to twelve thousand square feet, and we think we can do nine million out of that. Fantastic! That's, yeah, really exciting. Yeah, and the area that it's in is. It's more yeah. of a community center. So there's a farmer's market and less of a mall. So less commerce and more community, which I think, yeah. you know, that's another way that uh, commerce is moving as we want to be part of this community of, uh, you know, with the farmer's market and the art, the art uh, fair and all of that versus, you know, just being in a, in a retail center. Sure. Yeah, no, it sounds like a good fit. Um, let, let me ask you some, some things about you, you personally. Um, what would you say your biggest strength was? You know, I do the strength finders guide. If you're familiar with that book, um, uh, my, my strengths are ideation, futuristic, 
strategic adaptability and uh, significance. So I'm I I love ideation. I like seeing what's next. You know, so blending ideation and, and futuristic. Yeah, I talk about uh, scalloping. You know, so in 1986, I had this concept for a salon when I opened my first one. And then in 1989, we became different. In 1992, we became so we okay. kept evolving. Yeah, and yeah. you know, so we've been relevant and you know leading in the industry here locally and I think nationally because of our ability to adapt and create newness, but still with the same ethos for our brand, which is transforming the world with beauty. We do it in a different way. I mean, people used to smoke in the salons back in the day, yeah. you know. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so our ability to remain relevant and continue to evolve and build our brand, I think, is uh, has been what what has allowed us to not only survive but to thrive. Yeah. Okay. When you look back over your long career, um, what would be the biggest lesson that you'd learnt that you would pass on to the next generation about being in business? That's a really great question. I, I, um, you know, one thing that I'm coming to realize now is uh, really understanding or really uh, this whole happiness index. You know, I, I know what makes me happy. I, I think I have a feel for what, you know, makes most people in our company happy, but it's become so individual. And so I think really, you know, finding uh, what, what we're finding is in the years past is, our masters weren't the ones that left. It was the people that were have been with us for four or five years. Yeah. And, you know, they all of a sudden saw new opportunity or it wasn't, you know, they weren't getting as much fulfillment. And what I would have done different, what I, what we're doing now is we call it the sophomore slump. It's, mm-hmm. you know, people that are in that four to five years and we do a, a rehire. It's like an emotional rehire. Where are you at? What would, you know, where are you going to get fulfillment? Do you want to become a mentor? It was like they kind of lost purpose. Yeah. And uh, so to re-engage, that's been really, really interesting. So my my lesson was that I spent so much time with the new people and the masters that there was this this group in the middle that lost focus or or you know became focused on something else because the opportunity wasn't provided by the company. So now we're now we're you know going deep with them and uh you know, like I say, it's like an emotional rehire and finding out what does their next five years look like? Mm. And that's been remarkable. Okay. Interesting. You don't work behind the chair yourself anymore. You're totally focused I don't. on I still, business. I still do some, some hair for business or for uh, education. And, yeah. you know, I like working on photo shoots, but, and it's, it's primarily to make sure that, you know, the person, like you said, the, the head of the fish, they know that I, I can still cut a head of hair. Yeah. And I, I enjoy that. I, I do, you know, probably four or five haircuts a month on friends, yeah. okay. family. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's important that they see my hands are still in it. Yeah, sure. Okay. What What do you wish you were better at? Acknowledgement. I, you know, <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's really interesting because uh, I walked into a salon. This, this was probably 15 years ago. And one of the managers said, um, hey, could you go, you know, Pat so and so on the back. They sold eight dollars in retail per client. Mm. I said eight dollars. I said we do fourteen, and she said, "Yeah, but she used to she used to average four. Yeah. So now she's at eight. Yeah. And I so I had a really hard time recognizing mediocrity. Mm. You know, 
And when she told me that, I was like, she, she doubled, yeah. she doubled her performance, you know? Yeah. So that was one of the things that I, that, that took me a long time to learn was, you know, it's not just recognizing the best, it's recognizing mm. achievement. Yeah, and exactly. sometimes those numbers look average mm. and mediocre. And, you know, another manager said, uh, David, you know, they could go down the street and they would be the top in sales. Yes. And I was like, wow. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was a big lesson as well. So for me to, uh, my, my ability to recognize improvement, I think mm. was my biggest learning and it continues to be, I, I tend to look at, you know, who's really thriving and celebrate that yet, you know, there's the, the improvements on a daily, weekly, you know, yearly basis that is yeah. an improvement that just as important. Yeah, that was that was actually a very similar lesson to what I had, you know, and I used to have this mantra, catch people doing something right and tell them, you know, because I was right. pretty good at, at, at catching people doing something wrong and telling them. And yeah. yeah, looking for those personal bests, like like you say, you know, uh, if someone's done $100 for the first time ever in retail, you should let them know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even though you might have other people in the salon that are doing eight or $900 a week consistently, for that person who's broken the hundred dollar barrier for the first time, it's a high five material, and uh, you know, let's let's keep going and build on that. Yeah, and you know, and to be honest, I think as a leader, I inherited that from Horace. He was very uh, stingy with his compliments, you know, and you had to be a rock star, and you kept trying to be. I kept trying to be a rock star in the business to get some recognition from him. And, you know, I, I thought that's the way that you did it. And yeah. uh, my father, my father is very similar, you know, unless you're getting, you know, unless you were the best, it was going to be difficult to get a compliment. So I kind of inherited that from both my family and uh, from Horst and, you know, not right or wrong, but I think, you know, now that I'm recognizing it and that it's been pointed out to me, that's, that was one of my biggest failings early on in my career was continuing with that, mindset. And, you know, I look back on it now and the people that left that didn't feel appreciated, the people that didn't perform as high as they could because they gave up. What a shame. You know, it's something yeah. that I wish I would have, you know, come into the industry with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and so, you know, we're going to start wrapping up in a minute, but, um, you know, there's lots of lessons, as you've just said, with with what you said then about uh, Horst and, and uh, you know, the things that you wish you were better at. What I want to ask you about is leadership in general. What, what would be, you know, the most significant thing you've learned about leadership? 40 years of business well, building up this big empire. I think, you know, one is um, creating opportunity for people and keeping them out of danger. You know, so there, our staff are looking not only for opportunity, but uh, for me to protect them so stability and security is as important as growth. And I think we proved that through COVID as well. Our staff could not believe how well we communicated, how you know we came through it, that we continued to pay their, their health insurance, all of those things. So having people's back. But yeah. you know, a lesson that I learned you know, years ago was uh, somebody asked a question, do you know how you can spot a good leader? And I said, how? Well, they have followers. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, well, that's pretty simple, right? So how many people have your back as a yeah, leader? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're just leading through uh, fear and you're leading through, you know, you know, that kind of energy, you're not going to have people following you. They might be 
you know, in it. But anyway, so I think, you know, to create inspiration, to be able to um, share a vision and mm. get people to see the value of that vision. And, you know, what I think I, I've been blessed with is the ability to communicate what a difference we can do as a company, as a group of individuals that are focused on the same thing. We serve 400,000 people a year. If we treat them as a day maker, they'll go on to touch 10 more people in their day, mm. right? That's 40 million people a year we touch. And yeah. it's just absolutely amazing. So, um, you know, and that they feel a noble purpose in their mm. work and that where they, where they work, they uh, have an affinity to their part of the family and they know that they're loved. Mm. One of our uh, three pillars is creativity, love, and passion. There's not a lot of $35 million companies that talk about love, mm. yet it's, it's our pillar. And what I share with people is when people walk in, clients or staff, do you, do you feel like you're in a loving environment? Mm. Do the people that are there love each other? Do the people that are there love what they're doing? Do they love who they're serving? Mm. And it bounces off the walls at you. So I think, you know, my, my best uh, work is creating an environment that allows for love to bounce off the walls. Wow, that's that's fantastic. I love hearing what you've got to say. Um, I know you've had a very public uh, battle with uh, your health over the years, and and it's good to see you're looking so fit and well and healthy and completely in remission and stuff, uh, which is great. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. What did you learn through all that? You know, I I wasn't feeling well, and I had kind of a pain in my hip, and I was misdiagnosed twice. And one of the misdiagnosis was that I had multiple myeloma, which has a three-year life expectancy. For six weeks, I thought I had three years to live. And then I went to Mayo Clinic here in Minnesota, and they correctly diagnosed me with, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But by the time they caught it, it was in stage four. So when I did my PET scan, I lit up like a Christmas tree. I turned tumors all over my body. And what I, what I learned from it was you know, I, I wanted to be around for my family, of course, and, you know, to watch my, my daughters uh, grow older, but I had this strange sense of contentment. And I think it was because when I was 26, I put Daymaker on my business card and that that was my life's work. So I was 50 when I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I thought how blessed I was to have created a calling for myself and to be able to provide that same uh, magic in so many people's lives. So I, I had this strange sense of contentment that, you know, if it was time to go, then I had done my work. And that was one of the biggest lessons for me was, you know, do you have a purpose in your work? Do you feel like what you're doing is your calling or is it a job? And that's what I share with people now is, man, quit your job and find your calling because life is short and mine yeah. almost ended. Yeah. And then when I, when I came out of it, fortunately um, I've been in remission now for 12 years and at 10 years, they, they find it to be cured. So I have, I, I have a clean bill of health and, you know, looking back on it, it, it was a kind of a cauldron. I went through that um, it, it was so many lessons, but the biggest lesson was, wow, I, I've, I've did good work. I was content with my life. And uh, now I continue in that, in that same way as how do I expand on that? How do I continue to uh, provide that opportunity? So uh, 
having this opportunity to share my story with others. I hope that your audience, you know, take a look at being a daymaker and the blessings that it has. And one thing that I would share is you have to make your own day first. You can't give away what you don't have. So when I went through cancer, I had to become well again mm. to be able to go out and give it away. And that's that's one of those metaphors in life that, uh, you know, make your own day first, take care of yourselves so that you can go out and bless other people with that same energy. Yeah, fantastic. Well, listen, uh, this has been fantastic. It's been very, I'm not sure what the word is, but uh, uh, selfish for me even. You know, I've loved having this opportunity to, you know, you, you've got so much wisdom about you and uh, um, and honesty and and openness and truthfulness. And and it's a you know, it's, it's lovely to be in, in your presence uh, and having this opportunity to, to be able to ask you these things. I knew I was going to enjoy it and uh, and you haven't disappointed. And I'm sure other people feel the same. Um, whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? Whereabouts can they buy the book as well for anyone who wants to, to get it who hasn't got it? Instagram is David Wagner Inspired. Um, you can also find, find me on Facebook. Uh, there's daymakermovement.com. And uh, uh, if, you, if you go to daymakermovement.com, Amazon has books. It's a little wonky with their distribution. but And then I've got a podcast that we're just launching now too. It's uh, daymakerpodcast.com. And I look forward to having you as a guest as well, Anthony, because I, I respect you so much. Those would, those would be the easiest play. And then, of course, jute.com for Instagram and jute, dot, uh, and jute for Facebook. We've got a, a really, I think, fabulous social presence as well. Great. Well, I will put all those links in the show notes for today's podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast with David Wagner and you've enjoyed it as much as I have, then do me a favor. Take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. So to wrap up, David Wagner, thank you ever so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. My pleasure, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success. 